there are five spiritual qualities, faculties, which we all have. But they have to become five spiritual powers in order to give us the ability to transcend the human dilemma. Transcending the human dilemma does not mean one is no longer human. We've got this human form and we're going to keep it until the body breaks up. But we don't have to have the human mind with the human dilemma. So these faculties, these five, are within us. We all have them. And we often or always forget that they need cultivation, that we need to work at them. And it doesn't mean just in meditation. It means in daily living. Because if we separate meditation from daily living, it's uh, neither one has the benefit. So the meditation helps us to see this, this clearly, and uh, it helps us to direct our mind where we want it to be, but we have to follow through in everyday life. They are often compared to a team of horses. Buddha compared them like that. Where there is one lead horse and two sets, pairs of horses. So that makes them five. That are all pulling a wagon. Now, obviously, the lead horse can go as fast as it would like or as slow as it would like. It doesn't matter. But the two pairs, have to pull the wagon in unison. If one goes faster than the partner or slower, the wagon will topple. So we have two pairs and one lead horse. I think I'd like to talk about the lead <coughs> horse at this moment because it is not only important in this spiritual faculty it has pride of place in all our mental formations. And the, um, it is the first one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and it is the one where the Buddha said that we need it in order to gain uh, purity and access to the past, to the spiritual past, mindfulness. Now, mindfulness, I have already spoken about it to some extent, but not in the uh, complete detail, mindfulness is something that we don't usually even consider in our lives because it isn't even part of our vocabulary usually. Only when we become used to Buddhist terminology do we use that word and as we use it, we often also misuse it. Mindfulness is attention, paying attention, knowing exactly. It has a partner also, which is essential to know about, and that's clear comprehension. The Buddha put the two together, sati sampanyanya. Sati is mindfulness, sampanyanya is clear comprehension. The two are an indispensable pair in order to gain insight. And they are also an indispensable pair to live with 
if we want to make our lives meaningful, useful, and harmonious. Without that, we are usually under emotional stress because we're not watching out and also quite liable to use a direction which will not turn out to be beneficial because clear comprehension is missing. I'll explain to you what clear comprehension means. It's actually all very simple. The only trouble is that because people haven't got enough mindfulness, they can't remember anything. That's why one needs to write it down. That one can look it up again and again and again and again until it's part of oneself where it cannot be forgotten anymore. Mindfulness also includes memory. To be that one-pointed when one hears or sees, that one won't forget. Now those things that are of interest to oneself should be um, really fastened into one's memory. Clear comprehension means that before one starts out on anything, whether it's speech or action, that one determines the purpose. What's my purpose? And when one has ascertained that the purpose is valid and worthwhile, that the next step is then, in order to attain this valid and worthwhile purpose, Am I employing the most skillful means? Now that may take time. It's much better than rushing in. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And we cha- if we check out these means that I'm using, whether this is speech or action, it doesn't matter. Anything that we want to do, we only have three doors. We have the door of thought, of speech and action. That's all there is. So we need to check out what I'm doing now in order to attain the purpose which I have already checked out to be worthwhile. Is this skillful? Is it really the best thing? But then comes another consideration. Are these means within the Dhamma? Because you see now, the purpose could be to break into a safe. And the person who figures that one out says, well, that's perfectly justified. These people have far too much money. I haven't got any. So it's quite all right to break into the safe. Skillful means, yes, I've got all the necessary equipment. I'm going to go at night. Uh, I, I know about the burglar alarm. I've got all the means on hand. Everything's fine. But now comes the consideration is this really within the Dhamma? And not only the purpose, but also the means. Because there aren't any means that are justified by the end in sight. The means themselves have to be within the Dhamma. Now, within the Dhamma means that they have to be wholesome. They have to be good, goodness. There has to be benefit which is not selfishly um, accentuated but which has the aspect of either helpfulness, lovingness, service, um, calm, 
it has to have some real benefit which is not imaginary. Otherwise, one might as well just forget about the whole thing. Now, forgetting about the whole thing may not be so bad because most people run around in circles doing far too much, getting all their energy um, used up with quite um, unnecessary actions and thoughts so that they are the, in, the, uh, in the end there's no energy left to do that which is meaningful. People who do meaningful things are admired. Why? Because mo- most people don't. Not because it's such a fantastic thing to do. Most people don't do them. Because they haven't got the time, the energy, the selflessness. Nothing is there. They're just running around in circles doing things which are mostly geared either, well, completely geared, either to survive or to have comfort, pleasant feelings. In any manner or form. And all our energy just goes with that. No time left, nothing. Much too busy. So, maybe the purpose and the means are okay. It's okay to go and have a job and the means to make money and the means to get there and uh, do that. But is this really what I need to do? Is it really beneficial? We need to check that out. Then, having, having said yes to all three, comes the fourth one. Having done so, has it brought about the purpose I had in mind and has it really been beneficial? In other words, checking up at the end. Love person, death, which you can also translate as the ordinary marketplace consciousness into Nibbana, which is the ultimate in removal of all problems, takes place in the mind in each person's mind but it's got to be known it's got to be understood we've got to know we've got a marketplace mind and we've got to know that it can be transcended we've got to actually do it and as we do it we also must realize each step of transcendental uh, realization so that it comes together as a, a pathway so this is clear comprehension which applies to everything, to each uh, action in daily life, whether it's eating breakfast, getting a job, um, ringing up somebody, reading a book, how we organize our whole life, where we live, what sort of uh, home we make for ourselves, applies to everything marriage, children, anything at all. What's the purpose? Is it the skillful means? Is, are the means within the Dhamma and the purpose, of course? And at the end, have I actually fulfilled that purpose? And if, if not, why not? What went wrong? We may have the best intentions. It may not always work out. We may see that we may not have been very skillful. Perfectly all right. What we didn't, don't know one day, we might learn the next. It doesn't matter. Also, 
Am I relying on myself or am I relying on others? It's all part of that. But this applies, of course, to meditation. What's my purpose? Am I using skillful means? Are they wholesome and beneficial? Have I actually fulfilled the purpose that I set down with? That gives strength of determination. The strength of determination is absolutely essential. Without it, people meditate one day, don't meditate for three, then meditate one week, don't meditate for half a year, and all the rest of it. If we know our purpose, if we know the means, if we know the wholesomeness, and then see that there's a result, and keep that in mind constantly, there is no way that we could let go if we found the real purpose. Naturally, with that, we need mindfulness. Mindfulness means that we are actually putting our attention where we want it. Now we're learning this in meditation. We put our attention on the breath and we keep it there where we want it. If we do walking, we put our med- uh, attention on it and stay there with the attention. If we cannot stay with our attention span on any one thing for any length of time, obviously we'll never find out what our purpose is, the whole matter is. Because for that we also need an attention span. The, uh, the attention span of mindfulness is not discriminatory. Mindfulness does not say this is good or bad. Clear comprehension says that. Mindfulness just knows. It's knowing only. Being actually quite um, attentive to even minor aspects of oneself. If we don't have that, the um, gray areas, in our thinking will always be overshadowing the bright areas. The brightness of a mind means that there's mindfulness. There is really attention. Now, this mindfulness has four foundations, four bases. I've mentioned them before, but I will mention them again to make them quite clear. The first one's the body. Margaret, you have to go. Can you? (laughs) Yes, it's right. (laughs) The body. Now, the body is the one that acts. It is, of course, um, pushed to do so by the mind. But the action itself, needs attention for various reasons. The first reason is that we don't do anything wrong with the body. The second reason is that we don't do anything unnecessary. It's a waste of energy. The more agitated the mind is, the more agitated is the body. Totally unnecessary. Don't have to do anything like that. So first is nothing wrong. Second is nothing unnecessary. Third thing is, the reason for watching the body is, to finally come to the point where mind and body actually remain in the same place for at least some length of time. And the way we express that is washing dishes while washing dishes. Now, if you don't have a dishwasher at home, but are actually washing your own dishes, 
try it out this evening or whenever you're washing your next lot of dishes where the mind is and where the body is the mind the body is washing dishes no doubt about it they've got to be clean and the mind is probably on tomorrow's dinner or it might be on on yesterday's conversation or it might be on the next telephone call or it might be on some worry that hasn't been resolved yet but it's not on washing dishes washing dishes while washing dishes walking while walking they're doing it in walking meditation brings with it a complete letting go of all problems that aren't to be solved while we're washing dishes anyway problems don't actually have to be solved they usually solve themselves if we try to solve problems we only get into more problems but the actuality of having the mind in one place with the body at the same time brings with it the letting go of fears, anxieties, worries it brings with it a purification and this is what this whole thing is all about meditation has to be embedded in a spiritual path and the spiritual path has to bring purification if the spiritual path does not bring purification if there's no such uh, provision made in any particular spiritual path and all the great religions certainly have the purification in them then the spiritual path is a sham it's a mistake it's an idea it's not a real thing all great religions have the purification in them such as the Ten Commandments, the precepts in Buddhism, the laws in Islam, they all have the purification aspect. Mindfulness as a means of purification is not a thou shalt not, you must not, or anything like that. There's no sin attached to anything. The Buddha doesn't have the word sin in his language. Mindfulness brings the mind to the point where it doesn't deviate. Now, obviously, in meditation, we learn it. If we don't practice it in daily living, we might as well forget about it. In daily living, mindfulness has to become a habit, a good habit. Now, we all have habits. Some of them are better than others. Here is a habit of our mental formation, which is invaluable. There is no comparison to any other habit that we could possibly um, cultivate in ourselves. It means that our mind becomes clear and incisive, and it becomes a mind that sees what is really there and not what we'd like it to be. What we'd like it to be is an impossibility anyway. We'd like everything to be nice and pleasant. We would like everybody to love us, We'd like every, we would like to love everybody too. Of course, we can't do that, so we might have already forgotten about that. We would like to have everything that is nice permanent. We would like to have uh, no uh, losses. In other words, we have an idea about the world which is like the idea of a child. It's a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. A mind which is mindful couldn't possibly think like that. It sees the reality. It doesn't get bogged down by reality or unhappy by it because reality, what's there to be unhappy about? We don't get unhappy when it rains. It's a reality. Rain is part of the natural environment. We don't get unhappy if there's a tree out there. That's a natural environment. 
death, decay, impermanence is part of the natural environment. What's there to be unhappy about? But we don't like it. We don't like things that we haven't figured out yet, like that that's the right way. So we, we live like children. We live like Alice in Wonderland. And we haven't got any idea what it's really like. Mindfulness is the only way, the only mental formation that will make it possible to see reality and no longer object to reality, get unhappy by it, but get out of wonderland where we have made up ideas and stories the way it should be and then it never is. And then we think somebody messed it up for us. They changed the scenario. We had it all figured out so nicely. This is the first basis, the body, and we learn it, of course, through the breath and through the walking. This is the um, um, use, uh, that's the use we make of it in the meditation procedure, either breath or the walking. <coughs> if we were to pay attention to our physical actions, we would know in the morning when we, when we open our eyes. It's the first physical action that arises. We would know exactly when we get out of bed. We would watch our steps into the bathroom. We would watch every movement in the bathroom without thinking, oh, well, have I got time to, for this? And I wonder what time it is now, and oh, I should have brought my clock in here. And just watch every movement that one is doing. No worries nothing and not only that everything runs far more efficiently more easily no no um, um, hindrances in the way because we're paying attention so if we are mindful we know every action the second base of mindfulness is called Vedana Nupasana which translated means mindfulness of feeling now Feeling has two aspects, sensation and emotion. And we've got to be able to distinguish between the two. For instance, if you hit your foot on a stone, you get an unpleasant sensation and immediately also an unpleasant emotion. First it hurts and then one's unhappy about it. One's got to know what's going on within oneself. If we don't know, we'll never change it. We're going to be the way we were and hope for the best. But if we don't want to just hope, but want to really do something, then we have to be able to distinguish what goes on. So we have feelings. Feelings are sensations and emotions. And there are only three kinds of each pleasant, unpleasant and neutral and because the neutral one is at least not unpleasant we think it's pleasant we're not aware of neutral sensations and neutral feelings at least we're not having any pain so everything's fine when the unpleasant becomes strong or the pleasant becomes strong that's when we go into action mostly without even giving it any thought. Automatic, instinctive, impulsive reaction. In other words, the same buttons get pressed and 
the same printout appears over and over and over until one day one finally realizes is it really necessary? do I have to behave like that? do I really have to get upset when somebody says something or do I really have to get all uh, uh, angry or worried? is it really necessary? we have our buttons pressed all the time but we don't have to respond to them in fact one day we can get rid of those buttons what are we carrying them around for? who needs them? they're totally unnecessary they're nothing but an adornment of the ego the ego has to dress itself up so it has all sorts of little um, embellishments and these embellishments are the buttons that people press on us so when, when we have an unpleasant emotion or an unpleasant sensation our first and immediate reaction is I have to get away from it and the second thought is usually it's somebody else's fault she said something, he did something they are not doing it or they are doing it it's somebody outside of ourselves as long as we have that kind of idea in our mind that it's somebody else we haven't got any chance of changing ourselves we haven't got a spiritual path only when we start realizing that every single reaction that comes out of us belongs to us and has nothing to do with the trigger and if when we finally make ourselves a big sign and hang it over our bed and say, which says don't blame the trigger then we have a spiritual path if we stop blaming the triggers if we see everything that happens as nothing but a trigger which is which has the possibility to teach us something or make us uh, at least aware that our reactions are in, uh, in accordance with the triggers then we can start until then there's nothing we can do because we're not in charge of other people other people will keep on doing what they want to do the government will keep on doing what it wants to do the weather will keep on doing what it wants to do the Russians are doing what they want to do our neighbors are doing what they want to do husbands, wives, children they're all doing what they want to do so what's the use of reacting to all that stuff? they're going to keep on doing it this life, ten lives, hundred lives, thousand lives nothing to do with us the only thing that matters are our own reactions and only when we start taking responsibility to, for our own reactions are we having a chance to do something about ourselves and they are very easily seen but only with mindfulness again we need mindfulness we've got to know what's happening within then we can also apply clear comprehension I'm reacting now now is it a good purpose that I'm reacting that I want to react is it skillful means is it within the Dhamma am I really getting to this purpose in other words no more instinctive impulsive reactions they got to be checked out first and when we check them out then we realize those that we want to react to we can react to by choice perfectly right we can choose but not through instinct so we have 
unpleasant ones, which we call dukkha, which can be physical sensations to which the mind reacts with some um, unhappiness and tries to get rid of with aspirins or surgery or uh, whatever else we do, a different diet or standing on one's head or whatever we can do to get rid of these unpleasant physical things. But then we, of course, have all these unpleasant emotional things. And there, our aspirins and our um, band-aids aren't so easily come by, although people try everything under the sun to find some band-aid, to find something that will do it. But the only thing that will do it to get rid of these um, constant feelings inside where others are supposedly treading on our toes is to have real surgery about ourselves to really see what we're doing and checking out each purpose checking out each um, means that we're using so if we know that we can choose if we actually have come to the point where we are able to choose whether we want to react or not self-confidence arises a feeling of stability and safety arises we are no longer like a leaf in the wind prone to be blown here and there through other people's words or deeds we are, ta- we are taking responsible responsibility so the mindfulness of our either sensation or emotion makes it possible also to become aware of the instinctive reaction to all that happens within when there is pleasantness when there are pleasant um, um, sensations or emotions the uh, instinctive reaction is to want to keep them and since this is a total impossibility we can never retain any sensation nor can we retain any emotion they're constantly changing we've got to learn that about ourselves that all is constantly changing we can't keep it Now that will eventually take away our greed to keep that which is nice and to renew it all the time. And our dislike of that which isn't nice because we know all of it is constantly changing. So when we got rid of the dislike and have got rid of this constant reaching out to get the pleasant, at that time we don't have so much of unpleasantness within because we don't dislike the unpleasantness it just is it's our reaction that makes us suffer it's not the unpleasantness itself so here we can see that the mindfulness itself is doing what the Buddha said it would namely it's the purification of beings it's the remover of pain, grief, and lamentation. And it gives us the ability to enter the noble path. It means real attention to what's going on. The other aspect of ourselves that we can become aware of is our thinking. Now we have a body and we have a mind and within this mind 
is contained the feeling and the thinking so we are watching ourselves first of all mindfulness of the body then mindfulness of sensation and emotion and then And, and then we have the thinking process and this is the reason why I have asked you to label the thoughts in order to get an insight into the content of thought now if we don't have an insight into the content of our thought which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness we don't have that then we can never let clear comprehension work for us because we'll never know our purpose, we'll never know the means. It's the content of the thought which gives us a clue what are our purposes. So in meditation it's quite simple, we know the, the content, it's such and such, and just go back to the meditation subject. In out, Outside of meditation, if we become aware of content of thought, we can let clear comprehension work for us. The content is some sort of purpose we have in mind and it's usually if we haven't practiced either survival or pleasant feeling and when we become aware of those two things as our constant um, companions for as purposes we will see that they don't accomplish anything and our purposes will change and we will have a different direction so with that With that kind of understanding of ourselves, we have a chance to change our direction. And when we change our direction, we can have um, a spiritual path as our priority. The third foundation of mindfulness, which I haven't really uh, mentioned, um, is the fact that we know when thinking starts, which comes to the point of understanding also in meditation that there is a like um, advanced notice of thinking we can become aware of that in meditation as we become more and more adept at mindfulness we get that advanced notice which isn't thinking yet but it already has that turbulence in it and we can learn to either allow it to happen or not allow it to happen whatever happens to be our um, purpose at the time so we can become also we can learn to choose whether we wish to think or not we don't have to think and that makes life a different proposition when we no longer have to think I think that's enough for this morning. I will talk about the other four spiritual faculties this evening and uh, give you a chance to ask some questions if you like.
Any questions about anything, whatever? Yes. Um, the instruction you gave earlier on was when you get out of bed being mindful of going into the bathroom. What do you allocate some time to think, well, yes, I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go to the kitchen? Do you sort of allocate that thinking time before you do this? It's a planning time or solving problem time? Well, that that particular thought which has arisen, shall I go to the bathroom first or shall I go to the kitchen first, you become aware that you're thinking. That's mindfulness of thinking. There's no need to allocate any particular time to it. The best thing to do is to use mindfulness on any one of these aspects um, which is appropriate. I mean, it's useless to watch your feet when you cross a busy intersection. You know, you've got to watch the cars. So uh, whatever is appropriate at the time. So if you have to think about whether I should go to the kitchen or the bathroom, well, that's what you have to think about. And you know that you're debating that inside of yourself. You might think which is a better, better purpose. In other words, it does slow one down. But because one is slowed down, one makes far less mistakes. And uh, it's on a, on a, on a uh, material level and also, of course, on, a, on an emotional level. You also said that problems solve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I feel as though it's important to think about what the factors are in the problem if you don't come up with a solution. If you're aware of what's going on, is that all right? Well, yes. If there is an emotional problem, for instance, one needs to delve into the fact: why am I having a problem? And the answer has to be has to be questioned again. Why am I? Or why? Well, if if you are in a service um, uh, profession, why is that person having a problem? But most people. Why am I having an emotional problem with this? What is it that I'm not getting or what is it that I'm getting that I don't want? But the question always needs a, uh, the answer always needs another question. And um, if it's a uh, material problem, well, what's the best way to solve that? But uh, using problems as one's um, um, thinking mode is uh, very detrimental to one's happiness. If one becomes a, a fairly good meditator, it very often happens that one is meditating without thinking of any problem or anything. And the solution just arises like that, and you can go back to meditation. It happens quite often. You see, the problem's only arisen because there's no, no clarity in the mind. If there's clarity in the mind, there are no problems. Buddha didn't have any problems. As long as, as soon as there's clarity, there's no, no problem. A problem is always caused by non-clarity in the mind and by greed and, and, and hate, uh, either one of those, which is non-clarity in the mind. So it's when the mind is totally clear in meditation, um, a solution can very easily just arise like that and take care of it.
But if one has an emotional problem, it's very helpful to inquire why. Very, very useful. maybe in material matters because everything is so impermanent well why worry why build a new house why get a new car what for why not use one's energy to to um, understand reality to use a spiritual path as one's own main priority the more impermanence is seen the less problems there are because there can't be any problem, they're all impermanent too. And the easier it is to let go of the um, grasping for um, personal um, gratification. That's what everybody's doing. The whole world's doing it. That's how our economy runs, personal gratification. So it's much easier to let go when we see impermanence. And the deeper we see it, the easier it becomes. It doesn't mean we can't have anything. It just means that they, they don't, none of these things promise anything. Well, like what? Like building a house? No, like what? Give me a for instance. Well, if it's of benefit to humanity. Well, if it's a humanitarian project, why not? It has to, it will add to the goodness in the world without personal gratification. No, it's a totally... It's totally opposite. It's just the opposite. A person who wants to do humanitarian projects and has no idea of any spiritual values will always have his ego in the middle of it. Am I being appreciated enough? Are these people actually going to do what I'm telling them to do? Um, are, uh, are they, are they going to like me? Is it going to have a result? Am I going to achieve what I had in mind? It's going to be a constant hassle. The minute you see the reality of what really is, that everything is totally impermanent, you do the best you can and you, the rest is up to everybody else. And you do feel far more efficient and far more um, uh, capable. Song, you had your hand up. You were saying that the problem does dissolve itself without actually think about it, but isn't it that we Oh well, a problem is not ne- uh, a problem is not necessarily what you're going to do first and second. 
I mean, that's a, that's a plan for your daily activity. But you need to check that one out against purpose, means, dhamma, and result. You need to check all those out. I said, really, is there really purpose in it? And I said, the skillful means. But I mean, a problem up with these things that people um, push around in their minds constantly. Why did I do it? And why did I do that? And why did they do it? And why couldn't I have done that? And why am I not getting what this is, what I really want? This is the problems that people shift around in their minds without any um, end sometimes. And they get more and more despondent about it and more and more mixed up. And their emotions are no longer reliable at all. People with unreliable emotions are very hard to, for themselves to live with and for other people to live with. I started talking this morning about the five spiritual faculties and um, I will just quickly review what I said about them this morning even though some of you might have been there and heard it. Um, so that you have an overview of the beginning of it, what I said, and then can understand the rest of it maybe a little easier. There are five spiritual faculties which all of us have. When we cultivate them, they can become five spiritual powers, and then they become factors of enlightenment. Now, the word enlightenment is often thought to be something so far away from us that we don't even have any idea what we're talking about. But what we're talking about when we talk about enlightenment is nothing but a mind which is totally purified. And we need all the assets which we carry within us in order to help us to do that. Whether we get purified a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. But we do have those assets within. We have the faculties. But we need to know that they are of the greatest importance for cultivation. We must never take these things for granted and allow them to just wither away or just do a little bit of good for us. If we cultivate them and protect them and look after these faculties, they become powers. And when they're powerful within us, then they have the ability to shut out all those things which are hindrances to us. We compare, the Buddha compared the five spiritual faculties with a set of horses. That is, they're pulling one wagon. There's one lead horse and two pairs. Now, the lead horse naturally can go as fast or as slow as it wishes. The others have to follow. But the pairs have to be balanced. If they're not balanced, one goes faster than the other, the wagon will topple. So we have pairs which need to balance. We have one lead horse. The lead horse is mindfulness. I explained that at great length this morning and do not wish to repeat that for those that were here this morning. Uh, you can always get the tape, order the tape on it if you want to have more detail on it. I will just quite briefly say that mindfulness has four basis for ways of being used. Watching self-observation of the body, self-observation of our feelings, which are sensations or emotions, 
the self-observation of our thinking process and the content of the thought. Now if you think for a moment, we're using all four in our meditation. The breath or the walking is body. These are bodily functions, either way. The uh, unpleasant feeling which can arise through the sitting posture or the pleasant feeling which can arise through the concentration gives us the opportunity to watch our reaction. The thinking which happens has to be known in order to know that we have a content of that thought which gives us insight into ourselves. So the labeling is the one that is actually referring to the content of the thought, knowing that the thinking is going on, so, such as in neighborhood concentration, as we just talked about, is, for instance, knowing that there is thought. So all of these four are activated, all of these four mindfulnesses are activated in the meditative process, but that's not sufficient we have to equally activate them in daily life. That is a spiritual practice for anyone who wants to become awake and aware. For anyone, it doesn't matter under what label we'd like to put that. Labels of spiritual paths are anyway nothing but man-made ideas of what anything should be called. We'll use them in order to identify, but they don't have any real significance. But mindfulness has real significance. It is an, um, the ability to observe oneself objectively. And when we learn to observe ourselves objectively, we don't feel so much of that sting of being that individual that has to protect itself, that is being threatened, alienated, and so forth. Mindfulness goes together and is accompanied by clear comprehension and mindfulness as such is nothing but the bare knowing of what's going on without any judgment or discrimination the clear comprehension that can follow the mindfulness has four aspects the first one is what's the purpose of what I'm going to say or do is there a good purpose in it? Is it beneficial? Is it true? Is it right? Am I using the most skillful means to accomplish that purpose? Are these means and the purpose both within the Dhamma, which means wholesome, goodness? Are they, are they of purity? Both of them. The... Uh, end can never justify the means. The means and the end have to be both of, um, of wholesome uh, quality. And then going ahead, having decided it is what I want to do and it's all wholesome, then in the end checking out whether the purpose has been accomplished. And if not, why not? What went wrong? Now that is the um, partner for mindfulness and if we do that we do slow ourselves down which is excellent because slowing ourselves down means that we give ourselves time to
to consider. Like the proverb that says, fools rush in where angels fear to, fear to tread. When we want to become angels, maybe we don't want to become angels, but maybe we do. It depends. Some people think it's good to be an angel. Others think it's awful. But anyway, if we don't want to be fools, and I think most people don't want to be fools, we need time to consider. And the time for considering can be used to the greatest advantage in this manner. The Buddha always talked about these two together, mindfulness and clear comprehension. The mindfulness is the knowing, the clear comprehension is the weighing up, the discriminating, the realizing. You see, a person may have a purpose of breaking into a safe and may consider that a very good purpose because those people that own the safe, they're very rich and they don't need all that money and the person who wants to break in there is very poor, so it's good. So the skillful means, well, he gets all his tools together and uh, he knows where the burglar alarm is and he can prevent it going off. Well, he's got all the skillful means on hand. But the third question is, is it wholesome? Is it right? Is it good? Is it along the lines of purification? It's so simple. People have so many problems trying to figure out what to do and how to do it and when to do it. It's so simple. Is it purifying? Well, breaking into a safe is obviously not purifying, so there's no further discussion necessary. I mean, we knew, we knew that from the start. It's an extreme. But there are so many uh, shady areas where people are quite uh, unsure what to do. So this is our lead horse, mindfulness. And we practice that in meditation. We train ourselves in meditation to become mindful of the breath of the walking. The name of the attention on the breath is Anapanasati, which means mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath. That's its name. So we are we're learning to become mindful of what's really going on. It doesn't have to be important, it's just happening. And as we have trained ourselves somewhat in this um, mindfulness in meditation, we can then take that into daily life. We can take it into daily life by watching our physical action and having mind and body in one place, such as washing dishes while washing dishes and not thinking about tomorrow's menu and the, the discussion we had on the telephone just before we started washing dishes, not thinking we wish we were finished with washing dishes, not thinking that we wish somebody else would be doing it. None of that, just washing dishes. Just using the hands and the mind in the same place. When we wake up in the morning, the first thing we know is that we open our eyes. Hardly anybody who doesn't train themselves in mindfulness is ever aware of the fact that they're opening their eyes. Most people think, oh my God, is that time again? <laughs> That's the usual reaction to waking up. But when we have mindfulness of our physical action, this rather negative thought cannot arise. We can't have two things happening at the same time in our mind. So the mindfulness of being attentive to the opening of the eyes of lifting up the body out of the bed, putting the feet on the floor, takes away all this um, early Monday morning misery of having to get up and go to work again. There's nothing. It's not there. Because we can't put our mind on two things at the same time. That's why the Buddha said, 
This is the one way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of pain, grief and lamentation, for the elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, mindfulness. It is also the first factor of the seven factors of enlightenment when it has become a power and it becomes a power when it becomes a habit when it is so habitual that we can't do it anything else we're watching ourselves we are not blaming ourselves we're not praising ourselves we're not feeling exalted or depressed by what what is happening we're just having self-observation and through that in the first instance we have the benefit of that the actions most likely being more correct because we're having that observation of ourselves that we don't want to do wrong action we are more efficient with it it's all much easier to do so we have those benefits in the first instance but we also have the benefits of awareness of what we really are and who we really are mindfulness brings the greatest benefits the first pair that has to be balanced is faith and wisdom and it's mind and heart wisdom is mind faith is heart if we don't have both factors involved in our spiritual practice there is not only imbalance but there's also the impossibility to have a completeness on the path. Faith in the Buddhist terminology is often called confidence. The Buddha compared faith with a blind giant, very, very strong, but no eyesight, and wisdom with a small, uh, very weak, but sharp-eyed cripple and this blind giant called faith says to the small sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom please come and ride on my shoulders I'm very strong but I can't see you're very weak but you can see well together we'll go far wisdom has to ride on the shoulders of faith blind faith can move mountains but unfortunately being blind doesn't know which mountain needs moving so we have to have an understanding of the spiritual teaching we have to understand it there has to be enough clarity for us to understand why we're doing why we should be doing anything why we can do it how we can do it and the connection between ourselves and the path if we don't see the connection we'll be uh, wandering around in a daze there has to be a connection found between what's going on in here and the pathway which shows this can be improved upon if that connection isn't there has no purpose in practice so we have to understand it and then having understand it we've got to love it 
faith is love. Having faith in anything means that we are able to love it. We can only start loving it the minute we have realized what it has done for us. The minute we have seen that this spiritual path has actually done something for us, of course we will be inclined to give it our heart. Now it's impossible to love anyone or anything that we can't trust. Love and trust go together. Well, that's why the confidence which we can arouse in ourselves brings with it that feeling of openness. It is uh, contrary to skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is always concerned with finding fault. Fault is everywhere. But when we have love and not skeptical doubt, then we can see the beauty. The beauty of being connected to a path that will take us out of human problems, human dilemmas, into a realm of purity and clarity. Maybe we are not there, but we can see at least enough that this is possible. And so the path is only open if we can combine the two. In a traditional Buddhist society, which we haven't got here in Australia, of course, but of which we have little pockets, that faith and devotion is often easy to find. But the clarity of understanding is lacking. Whereas in a Western society, we're very often very intellectually inclined and we can understand very well, but love and devotion isn't there. It just won't work with one side only. It's got to have both in it. When we have love, we will have devotion. And when we have devotion, there will be reverence. Now, those are words and qualities of heart which are hard to find in a Western society. Where is devotion to be found? Where is reverence to be found? We don't have much that we can revere or that we can be devoted to. So it is something that we're not so familiar with. But we can find it because most people's hearts are really yearning for that. So without trying to find the fault, we can find the rightness of it. Everything depends entirely upon our viewpoint, as long as we have viewpoints. It's only the enlightened one that hasn't got any viewpoints. So since we all have viewpoints, we might as well choose and use those which bring within us the qualities which are wholesome and uplifting. To have faith and confidence, devotion and reverence is uplifting. It brings a buoyancy to one's inner being. This buoyancy overcomes the natural inertia of mind and body. This buoyancy makes it possible to tread the path to its very end The buoyancy makes it possible to overcome difficulties without even finding them difficult. 
where therefore we need to combine our intellectual understanding with the heart quality of loving that which is transcendental to the human uh, human activity and may not be fully um, within our grasp but at least we have enough inner knowing that such a thing is possible and if we can then find that within we have the beginning of the uh, the noble path which then can be trod upon quite easily it's not easy to meditate very successfully day in and day out but when there is a love of it then what could hold one what could one hold hold back from that if we love the practice because we realize it is that which has an entirely different aspect in our lives then even when it's <coughs> difficult it isn't really very very um, uh, heavy for us so that part is only possible if we do not take meditation out of context that part is only possible this aspect for us if meditation is used within the framework of the whole of the spiritual teaching the framework is like embedding it in its necessary qualities which we need to arouse in ourselves again we find both sides there are those who have devotion and reverence and meditation is a, it's like a, f- a foreign country whereas in the west people want to meditate but the spiritual path well that might be something from the too far away it's, it's asian or it's uh, odd or it's uh, difficult or whatever we think about it it has to be embedded in it without that embedment in it we don't have the support system that we need meditation is not such an easy thing to do as you must have all noticed by now and uh, having noticed that by now you must also be wondering whether you're ever going to keep this going if it's embedded within that which shows us a way out of all difficulty then one keeps going the buddha said there's only one thing i teach and that suffering and its end to reach now it doesn't mean that he's going to teach us that we have to suffer what he's teaching is that there is suffering there is unsatisfactoriness and we might as well admit it and stop trying to run away from it there is an end to it but that end doesn't mean that the world all of a sudden turns into utopia it's not pie in the sky the end to suffering means that there's an end to the sufferer because it's like this buddha said there's the deed but no doer there's suffering but no sufferer there's a path but no one to enter there's nibbana but no one to attain it now this is the ultimate of the path which has complete insight into the delusion of self it's not a paradox it's just to show that we have the delusion of being the sufferer 
and if we take that on like a child grabs the hand of the mother to get across the busy street and is totally convinced and confident that mother's going to look after it not let it be run over that is the way we need to start being on a spiritual path we don't know what it's like we don't know what nibbana is like we don't know what it's like never to suffer from anything never to have any anxiety in there but if there is a spiritual master that says I can show you the way then we need to come back to this feeling of I'd like to be shown and that's the confidence the confidence is never blind it's always just enough confidence to try and find out for oneself that's all it's never just taking on a belief system it's never to take on the understanding that because it's been transmitted that it's because it's been transmitted for two and a half thousand years because it's written down in a holy book because other people think so because um, uh, other people are saying it's a good thing but because it's rational and logical or because it's mystical none of that the Buddha gave all these reasons not to believe in it not because my relatives believe it none, none of that only if we find out for ourselves just enough confidence to do it faith and wisdom are the activating of our heart and mind quality it is not sufficient to just um, find it pleasant and um, that can happen that one finds meditation pleasant believe it or not and uh, that there are very pleasant feelings arising that's not enough and uh, that one has ideas of um, an ultimate uh, um, happiness that's not enough there has to be an absolute understanding a deep insight into absolute reality that's not intellectual that's experiential so wisdom is not knowledge however it's based on it we need some knowledge in other words we need some information and this is a sort of thing that I'm trying to impart information I can neither impart wisdom nor can I impart faith nor can I impart insight and neither could the Buddha do that although I'm sure he could do it a hundred times better than me but all he did was give information so this information then amounts to knowledge when we remember the information when we don't remember the information it's not even knowledge then it's just some information that went in one ear and out the other and Buddha compared people to four kinds of clay vessels the first kind has holes in the bottom you pour the water in and it pours right out that's the kind of information goes in one ear and out the other then there's a kind of clay vessel that has cracks in it you pour the water in and the water seeps out that is when you keep the information in your head till you get home but tomorrow morning it's gone then there's a kind of clay vessel that's full to the top with water 
that's the kind of person that has heard it all and knows it all. There's nothing new can pour in because it's full. All viewpoints and opinions is already full. Nothing new can go in. But then there's a clay vessel, doesn't have holes, doesn't have cracks, it's completely empty. can pour all the water in and it stays in. So if we can be that kind of clay vessel, then the information turns into knowledge. That now we know something. Now, all right, now having known something, that of course on a spiritual path is not sufficient. That's all right in the university to know something, but not on the spiritual path. On the spiritual path, this knowledge now has to be converted. It has to be transmuted. It has to be converted into action and has to be transmuted into experience. Now that we know what needs to be done, we have to actually do it. And after having converted it into action, then it becomes an experience. And as it has become an experience, it turns into wisdom. So this is the pathway from information to wisdom. And the confidence and the faith is something that arises actually out of a very interesting um, background. It arises out of the fact that we have seen our own dukkha. I don't know if you all know the word dukkha. Anybody not know what the word dukkha means? Okay. Um, it's translated often as suffering, but it means everything that's unsatisfactory. Everything. Whether it's a, a, a physical uh, headache, or whether it's a mental restlessness, or whether it's an emotional feeling of uh, a certain lack, or anything that we'd find that we're not completely and totally happy and at ease, that there could be something else. And we're searching and looking for something else. Now, confidence and faith in a spiritual path arises out of the fact that we have actually seen that we cannot escape dukkha through worldly activities. That we have tried enough already in this lifetime or have enough understanding already that in the world with our sense contacts that we make dukkha cannot be eliminated and that we have also seen that dukkha is universal not individual we do not have a monopoly on it it's not a personal problem it's a problem of universal proportion for humanity and that within this dukkha we have taken constantly the wrong road to get rid of it we have either tried to run away from it try to blame somebody for it or try to distract ourselves from it be sorry for ourselves become depressed or change our environment change the people the whatever it is that we want to change we have never up to now seen that there has to be a change within rather than a change without and as we see all that in ourselves we also see that everybody is exactly the same nobody is exempt it's the same for everybody and when we see that of course we have a totally different heart connection to other people they no longer threaten us, we're no longer afraid of them, they no, can no longer do anything to us, they've got just as much dukkha as we have. And when we see that there's nothing in the world itself 
that can promise us without fail to get us out of that dukkha, then we're ready for the spiritual path. And then confidence arises. When we then hear a true path, then confidence arises. So it actually needs a little bit of self-observation and that's why mindfulness goes ahead. It's the first thing with that self-observation that there isn't a total satisfaction to be found and then the confidence comes. And with that confidence can come the love of it. And you know very well that what one loves one can do so much better than what one finds a chore. If one has a job that one finds very irksome and a real chore, one isn't going to be terribly good at it and wants to get out of it as quick as possible. But if one is doing something that one really loves, one likes to stay with it. And one is going to be good at it. One's going to learn to be good at it because one loves to be connected to it. So this is what we need. <coughs> and most people would like to feel love. This is the kind of love that has absolutely no sting to it. It is impossible that this is the kind of love that could ever be disappointing. So we have that as a pair which will give us an opening into a dimension which can be our priority. The next pair that has to balance is energy and concentration. And it is an interesting aspect because energy is necessary for meditation so that we can concentrate. But if there's too much energy, there's restlessness. And if there's too much concentration, there's sloth and torpor. So it is again a balanced effort. And the energy which we need is a mind energy, a mental energy. And if that mental energy is not sufficient for being aware, alert, and awake, and the concentration starts, then we have this um, uh, case in meditation where one becomes woozy or even sleepy or even falls asleep. And if that is the case, then of course the meditation isn't functioning at all. And if there's a lot of mental energy, the mind just goes all over the place and can't concentrate at all. So we need to balance that. Now the balancing of these two is a matter of practice. It has to be, if, there's, if one finds oneself to be more inclined towards one side than the other, obviously one needs to balance that by practicing the other. If there is a lot of concentration, but very easy sleepiness, one should do inside meditation. If there's an awful lot of energy and not enough concentration, one should do calm meditation. Now, a person who is restless, agitated, needs to calm down. A person that is uh, sleepy and, and um, uh, slothful needs to wake up. And that can come when we can see reality. So we can divide our meditative endeavors between calm and insight. Now, so far, I have shown you in meditation the 
possibilities of using calm and insight in the same manner in the same time of meditation namely when you stay on the breath that's for calm when you know what you're thinking that's for insight when you realize the breath is totally impermanent that's for insight when you realize that the body is breathing but the mind is watching and it cannot be done any other way then you realize that you've got two mind and body which is the beginning of insight that there are two and that the mind is the one that is actually the one that observes whereas the body has functions and again with the walking the mind says to walk so these are insight paths and tomorrow I will tell you more aspects of insight meditation how one can use other methods to gain insight other insight methods and also which way they're leading us because if there is of course we need the calm to gain real insight but if there is that kind of sleepiness at times even then it is important to have another um, option to use for insight and to see things in a more realistic way as we see things in a more realistic way the mind wakes up to become more energetic so these two have to balance and energy is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment virya in Pali so you can see what an important aspect that is in our whole makeup and it is a very important that if we want to be on a spiritual path that we do not waste our energy we don't have unlimited although we can improve upon it and through calm meditation energy will if it is concentrated will regenerate we still have limits so it is very important that in our daily lives we make sure that we do not um, extend our energy to activities which are not important so that there's nothing left of energy to use for a spiritual endeavor and we must watch and choose what we do and do not be pushed into directions without having a, 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 a choice concentration of course is particularly geared into meditation because it is meant as meditation meditation and concentration are actually synonymous but there are other ways of gaining more energy through insight which are contemplation and uh, I will explain that in detail tomorrow because it will go too far today so we have not only different methods of meditation for insight we also have contemplation for insight and contemplation while it is a thinking process is not the ordinary thinking process it is trying to ascertain reality behind all these appearances the appearances which we constantly take for granted but which do not give us any satisfaction they are all appearances in fact because they are appearances and never do satisfy us they can give us a lot of agitation so the agitated mind needs to calm down to trying to stay on one point 
the slothful mind, the one that doesn't have any energy in it, needs to gain insight first in order to find a place to rest. The, uh, if we have a slothful mind that needs to be woken up through insight, when it gains insight then, it will have the capacity also to get to the calm. Now, people whose minds are very inquisitive are naturally interested in gaining insight first. That's fine too. It doesn't matter. As long as there's enough energy to be alert and not restless. Effort has to be balanced. The, um, there's a story from the Buddha's time which gives an idea of balancing effort. Nobody can tell another person how to balance their effort. We have to do it ourselves. There's a story of a monk in the Buddhist time who came from a very rich family and when he became a monk, he was so determined that he was going to attain Nibbana in a very quick time that he did walking meditation morning, noon and night. And usually one does it barefoot. And the story goes that he had never gone barefoot before and therefore the soles of his feet were so tender that they were covered with down. And uh, when he was doing his walking meditation on this sandy path, up and down, up and down, day in and day out, very soon his feet started to, the soles of his feet started to crack. And, uh, and then they started to bleed and it became extremely painful. And he kept on going and kept on going and finally he thought to himself, well, I've been doing this now for three months and I haven't been concentrated for one minute and I have my, the, my feet are so hurting me so much, I think I'm going to take off my robes, go back home to my parents and use the wealth of my family to support the Buddha. Well, the Buddha heard about that and went to visit the young monk and he saw the bloodstains on the walking path. And he said to the young monk, why are there these bloodstains on your walking path? And the young monk said, I've been walking back and forth for three months and I'm not concentrated, but the, the, my soles of my feet have cracked and it's so painful, I think I have to disrobe now and go back to my family. The Buddha said, and when you were still a lay person, did you used to own a veena? A veena is an Indian string instrument comparable to a guitar, only larger, and uh, the tone might be a little more subtle. And he said, yes, I used to own a veena. And the Buddha said, and did you used to tune it yourself? And the monk said, yes, I used to tune it myself. And the Buddha said, well, if you let the strings be too loose, what happened? And uh, the monk said, nothing. Don't get any music that way. And Buddha said, and if you tightened them too much, what happened? And the monk said, well, you get screeches. Don't get any music either. And the Buddha said, well, how do you get music? And uh, the monk said, well, you have to just tune it right. And the Buddha said, that's right. That's exactly the same with effort. You have to tune it right in order to get it to be of benefit to you. So the story goes that the monk understood, kept being on as a monk, tuned his effort more finely, and in the end became enlightened. This is our way of doing, of knowing about our own effort. We have to know ourselves. There's nobody else that can listen to that tuning and hear 
whether it's tuned correctly. We have to know. On this path, one of the tendencies which is very common is to let the strings be too loose. You know that business of, yes, I've meditated off and on. <laughs> it's very common, no? Okay, if, if there's no music to get from that, well, then we know we've got to tighten it a bit more. There are those people who tighten it too much. They get a headache and uh, get hot flashes and uh, uh, blame themselves for not being enlightened yet and all the rest of it. Well, they've got to li- let loose a little. They're in the minority. The majority is letting, having the strings too loose. But if the results are not exactly what we're looking for, well, we just know we've got to tighten up a bit more. That's all. It takes energy. But energy is possible to regenerate through concentration. So we need the energy to concentrate, but concentration brings energy. It is not something that is lost, but we can reinforce it again and again. But we ourselves have to do that. I think that is enough for tonight. Maybe you'd like to ask some questions. You don't measure it. If the concentration results in, in um, a lack of energy, of alertness, no alertness, no awareness, then although there is concentration, there is no energy to realize what's going on. If you are one-pointed, then you have plenty of energy. Well, if you're in the jhanas, you've got right concentration. Sama samadhi means jhanas. But I mean, there's so many pitfalls before you get there, and even while you're there, you're still pitfalls. But the one who's restless needs to have more um, concentration for calm. And the one that gets quite easily calm, you know, there are people, believe it or not, who can get calm very quickly.